1: As the push for a universal health care system in the United States becomes more and more popular among the American people, we're beginning to have public conversations about access to and affordability of medical care. While many of us may not consider our health insurance until we need it, for those with chronic conditions, the American medical system can be a nightmare of insurance claims bureaucracy that prevents patients from getting the care they need at a cost they can afford. Worse, the rising prices of drugs and treatments developed in this for-profit system mean that some patients receive more medical care than they want or need, sometimes at the expense of their quality of life. When a young Catherine East Standifer was suddenly diagnosed with Long QT syndrome, the same congenital heart condition as her younger sister, she was faced with what felt like an impossible choice, implant a cardiac defibrillator and be forever tied to the American medical system, or take a chance with death. In her stunning debut, Lightning Flowers, My Journey to Uncover the Cost of Saving a Life, Standifer explores the system as both a patient and a consumer, visiting factories in California as well as mining communities in Rwanda and Madagascar, where the metals in her defibrillator were sourced, to learn more about the true human cost of the device that was meant to save her life. Throughout, Standifer wonders whether her life is worth this price, and asks us to reimagine approaches to care, both medical and environmental. Today on the New Books Network, join us as we sit down with Catherine E. Standiford to learn more about her memoir, Lightning Flowers, available now. Catherine, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. So to begin, your book, Lightning Flowers, opens with this really haunting line, and the line is, nothing can prepare you for what it feels like to be shocked by an implanted cardioverter defibrillator. So, can you tell us a little bit about that experience and about the heart condition your defibrillator was intended to treat?
0: So, being shocked by a defibrillator is akin to being struck by lightning from the inside of your body. (laughs) It's very bizarre. Uh, There was a moment that I didn't know what was happening, and my hands actually curled into claws with the electricity. There was a kind of thump deep in my chest that felt like getting hit with a maul, like one of those big axes that you chop wood with. And once I figured out what was happening, then it was just otherworldly to feel the electricity come in and be conscious during that and wonder if my life was being saved or if it was actually shocking me in error. In terms of the heart condition, my sister and I have something called long QT syndrome which is an electrical abnormality in the heart that is genetic in which um, during certain types of stress, the heart can start quivering instead of fully beating. And so it doesn't pump blood correctly, which means you can pass out and um, either your heart sort of recovers its rhythm and you wake back up, or if you're not lucky, you die of sudden cardiac arrest. And so an implanted cardiac defibrillator is a... um, It's a microelectronic placed in the body that that is connected to your heart with a wire. And essentially, it's watching your heartbeat to see if your heart might need to be shocked to disrupt that sort of quivering. And once the heart is disrupted, often it will settle back into a normal beat and someone will recover consciousness. So that's why it was so strange that the device was shocking me while I was awake. Normally, you should be unconscious when it actually goes off. Um, my sister also has one of these devices. And the book is really about my troubled relationship to this medical technology that can absolutely be life saving and was life saving for my sister. But that also comes with quite a bit of baggage, of which um, being shocked by accident is just one variety.
1: So you and your sister were both diagnosed with long QT in your 20s. So in the early days of coming to terms with your condition, you write that it was very difficult to adjust as a, as an active young person to the idea of taking beta blockers and limiting your physical activity. Uh, so considering the personal challenges you faced in those days, what got you interested in the more um, existential question of whether the cost of the implanted device was worth potentially saving your life?
0: Yeah, so... Although the book opens with me taking these accidental shocks to the heart, my story really begins when I was 24, uh, about three years earlier. And I uh, passed out in a parking lot in Jackson, Wyoming, and woke up with this new relationship to the fact that I could die at any moment. And that is really fundamentally true for all of us humans in a really uncomfortable way that a lot of us don't live with consciously. You know, we don't necessarily get in a car and think about how we could die on the way to wherever we're going. Obviously COVID has created a situation in which um, people have to think about death, going to the grocery store or the post office, but that's relatively new. And so for me uh, there was sort of the layer of being terrified of dying. And then there was the layer of treatments getting in the way of life, the life I wanted to live. And I think anyone who, begins to face death, has to ask themselves what it means to live, what it means to live a good life, what it means to be able to do the things you love, and to what extent each of us can transition into a new way of being when some of those things go away or become inaccessible to us. So my questions about whether the cost of the implanted device was worth it, And by cost, of course, I meant environmental cost to make it and socio-political cost for those who live in areas that are impacted by resource extraction. And then also the cost to me and other parts of my life within the medical system. Um, I really started asking those questions out of some visceral understanding that the baggage was beginning to outweigh the life-saving potential. I I obviously had, as I think most 24-year-olds would, quite a transition after my first heart surgery, learning to live with the device in my body and understanding how it would affect my relationships, how it would change what I was able to do or not do, how it would affect my relationship to my own body. And then about six months after that surgery, I ended up going septic and almost dying of this bacterial infection that had entered my bloodstream that by all estimates shouldn't have happened. (laughs) Um, There was a sense of like, this is a bacteria that normally lives benignly in, uh, in the body. And to be a 24 year old who cannot fight off a bacteria that normally lives benignly in the, the body was just stunning to me and really underscored that having an implanted cardiac defibrillator didn't mean I couldn't die. It just meant I might not die of cardiac arrest. But over time, and I I don't want to spoil too much for the readers, but over time, the types of technological malfunctions or problems that I had within the medical system really forced me to run the math differently on what makes it worth it to use that kind of technological intervention. So it's a question of, can it save a life? Yes. And what are all the other ways that it doesn't? Or, hmm. um, or uh, to what extent is the technology the only way or the best way to save that life? I think that's really a question that I come to by the end of the book.
1: Right. And in addition to those questions about, you know, how useful such a device really is to the patient. The book also delves into this really fascinating journey into searching for the answer of, you know, is it materially worth it to make these defibrillators? Um, so in order to answer this question, you uh, sought to understand the actual human cost of the minds where the materials in your defibrillator came from writing quote, each defibrillator repository of so many minerals from around the world could be implicated in so much. So you went to the factory where the device was assembled in California, as well as to mines in Rwanda and Madagascar. What are some of the things that you learned about our role in climate change as consumers at the end of a long supply chain? What are some of the ethical concerns that come with this position?
0: This is a really complex Question that I think lives at the heart of the book. And one thing that I learned in this journey is that some of these questions are unanswerable and there are things we can do. It's sort of a both and. As consumers at the long end of a supply chain, we are making decisions every day that require that landscapes somewhere else change. Some of us live in communities where resource extraction might be occurring. But for a lot of us, especially in the US, we are just really divorced from what it actually takes to bring objects into our lives. And some folks have asked me how defibrillators are any different from the phones that most of us are carrying around. And the answer is, it's not. It's not. It's a an exact form of complicity. But as far as I could tell, no one had ever asked about the ethical implications of that type of medical technology that could be life-saving and how we remember that there are actually lives at either end and that what it takes to extract resources, refine them, and move them across the world can actually affect those other lives. And it's not that there's one solution like oh, we just shouldn't make defibrillators at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, the book really wrestles with how even once I feel like the math is not worth it for me, um, I wouldn't want my sister necessarily told no. And at the same time, we live within a system that because of its blindness to these basic questions of resource use um, is not closing some of the loops that might be closed in terms of like how – how we make the decisions to employ resources, how, to what extent we just assume we should have them or feel entitled to them, to what extent we even notice we're using them, and to what extent we plan into our products, what their next life might look like. And one of the things I really move into in the epilogue is the sense of responsibility that the makers of products should really carry around not buying into the delusion that things get thrown away. Away is always a place. And so for me, our role as consumers is to stay awake to the objects that are entering our lives and to support wherever necessary policies that might actually seem like they work against our best interests um, or work against our best interests individually in honor of what collective best interests might look like. There are a lot of these wicked, wicked problems that can only be solved on a policy level, or or if not solved, maybe gestured toward. Um, we can plant the seeds of being in a different relationship to these objects. So I think part of my hope with the book is that a practitioner or a patient understands that this is not as simple as implanting an insurance policy inside someone. I think there's been a little bit of a a view inside the cardiology world that not that they would say it this, this casually, but like, why not? Why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you can prevent someone's life by just putting this in as a backup, why not? And The answer is because that is earth that required the dismantling of a landscape. In some cases, the removal of a village, the separation of indigenous people from places where their ancestors have been for thousands of years, it might be impacting endangered species. Certainly, there is a carbon cost to shipping those products across the world and going through refining processes. And then for the patient, even the weight of extra surgeries, the weight of potential technological failures as have happened repeatedly in my own story, and then what it requires for the patient to manage that type of medical care, particularly within a system that does not make it uh low cost or seamless for people to access care and access the right kind of care and afford care. Um, That's not casual. That is an enormous math. And so coming into the fact that there are costs embedded in these products that we can remember when we're making the decision whether or not to implant. The way we live our lives shapes the planet and the way we relate to death shapes the planet too.
1: That's a a great response and um, a wonderful thing to consider just about how much these devices cost, um, not just materially, but also in terms of emissions and also in terms of um, the patient's quality of life. And especially, I just want to add one more question in here or one more thought in here. When we consider that um, often, the defibrillator that's implanted is not the last one for that patient. Mm, That's right. Right. Because in your case, you actually had more than one implanted. um, And that came into the equation of the the total cost.
0: That's right. I really placed a lot of emphasis in my own question asking on on this idea of when my battery runs out on my first device, should I get another one? That was really part of the impetus for asking the global question in the first place. It was like, okay, well, before I make this decision, how do I run the total math? And I did decide to get a second one. And then what was so stunning is that during the procedure, they run a test to make sure that the new device is appropriately working. And that's when they discovered that I have a broken wire stuck in my body. Um, And the defibrillator that they had just implanted, because of the test, like maybe not working or maybe working, they they weren't totally sure where the electricity had gone when they set it off. And so Mm -hmm. it was not trustable as a device anymore. And therefore, it was recommended that I have that one replaced. And so that one was only in my body for about 10 days. And I just remember being stunned by like, (laughs) (laughs) I have placed all of this time and energy into deciding whether or not to get a second one. And suddenly I'm on my third. And that one that had been in my body so briefly, is also the product of so many global resources, so much time and effort, and there's nothing to be done with it. It will likely be incinerated. And the, again, the casual nature of medical waste, uh, just being treated as waste, there's there's sort of a shared delusion that we're all involved in there, that it's not a big deal, and that it goes somewhere and it's fine there. And that's fundamentally not true. There's nowhere for it to go. And it's very high cost to make the device and then destroy the device, essentially for no reason. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So another, another really fascinating aspect of Lightning Flowers is how well it establishes the divide between the worlds of sickness and health, especially in a later chapter when you write, quote, once you have been seriously ill, nothing is benign. To be well, then, is a sort of faith, a shrugging off of strange sensations, a belief that the body is operating. You make the point that all health and ability is temporary. So what are some of the dangers inherent to faith in the body as infallible, perhaps especially in terms of how the well tend to view the sick?
0: You know, this is one of the questions that I think sits most closely to what it means to be alive as a human, because one of the things the book really unfolds for readers is the way when you are in relationship with death, which I think to be... Ill or injured in any way is actually to be on some kind of spectrum where you're speaking to death. You're talking about ways the body might change forever, things that you might lose that you loved that are related to your embodied experience. Um, you know, ability is is such a key word here, and so there are all of these forms of death that are involved in illness and injury, even before the actual final thing that we think of as death. And to to be aware of death all the time actually makes it really hard to live. We are a species that is built to fight, uh, flee, (laughs) or freeze. And there's a real shutdown that can happen when death is in the room. Because we do need to attend to its presence if we're aware of it. So I have enormous empathy for the folks who are not ill or have, have not been seriously ill who resist the experience of those around them, there's a, a way that this is terrifying. If you are a well person and you come into contact with people who are losing abilities in their body, um, there, there's just a real terror there that it could happen to you too. And that's true. It can happen to you too. And actually, it will happen to you too. That- I guess there are some people who die rather suddenly without experiencing any decline. But most of us will go through some periods of losing ability in our bodies and having to face how that changes, what it means to be alive, what is pleasurable for us, how we view ourselves in terms of identity. And again, just our relationship to that final change, which is death. So there's a real way that folks who have not experienced illness or injury or folks who have not integrated the illness or injury, they've maybe had themselves. They're just in resistance to what that experience means. And so it's a lot easier to blame people who are injured or ill for their conditions, to believe that in some way they are choosing it. And I don't, I don't want to uh, suggest that there's not any way that those of us experiencing these things might Uh, Be able to respond to our experiences in a certain way, right? There, there certainly are things we can do to support our health, and there are ways we can approach our experiences. And yet, fundamentally, it's unrealistic to view all illness and injury as caused by the person experiencing it, or to to believe that it could be undone if the person just (laughs) insert (laughs) X Y Z, you know, whether it's celery juice or positive thinking. When When you look outside the window, you will be reminded that all things are seasonal. And we are not good in this culture at seeing the seasons of decay, of breakdown, of death in its gradations. And it really is a beautiful thing if you are an ill or injured person and you have someone in your life who is able to sit with you in that experience and really be with you. And not run away from those experiences of, um, I don't know, the the period of breakdown, the period of proximity to death.
1: Yeah. And just a follow-up question about that or a follow-up comment is, you know, I imagine that that this process was especially fraught for you being as you were 24 when you first began this journey, when you first learned about having QT syndrome, long QT syndrome. And um, so for you, uh, you mentioned that there, there were a couple of people in your life who were willing to, to sit and um, to be with that feeling with you during that time,
0: right? I say in the acknowledgements that my mother is the real hero of this story. <laughs> <laughs> for everything that happened to me that is perhaps a little messed up or... Um, Wild to go through in your early 20s. I was so privileged to have the mother that I had who dropped everything and, and flew to be with me in the hospital multiple times. And in the book, she really holds a space for the reader of showing what it looks like to be present and tend to someone moment by moment and not run away. There are other characters in the book that struggle a little more with that proximity to death. And my mom, I only discuss it briefly in the book, but she took care of her own mother who had brain cancer from the time my mom was 14 on. Mm -hmm. And by the end of her life, my grandmother was missing the entire back of her skull because she was having brain surgeries back when brain surgery was still very experimental. And my mom just grew up understanding the dailiness of that experience The way that you couldn't rush to fix the larger situation, but you could tend with tenderness to all of these little pieces like, you know, getting the warmed blankets and laying them on you or spooning ice cream into your mouth or making sure that you had someone to help walk you to the bathroom. These experiences are not going to be made easy. And so the people who can make them survivable are just stunningly beautiful.
1: So, for much of Lightning Flowers, you are faced with myriad difficulties attempting to receive care in the American healthcare system as an uninsured patient prior to Obamacare and even after in some cases. Um, Still, you acknowledge that you were lucky because your family was supportive of you, could help you navigate these systems and could afford to assist you financially in some ways. So can you tell us about some of the cruelties endured by those who are uninsured in this system? How might your experience as a long QT patient have been different if you did not have access to this kind of familial help?
0: One of the things that was really underlined for me in my own healthcare experiences, and then again, as I was having to write them into the book, was... The difference between living through the difficulty of an illness or injury and the difficulty of experiencing the woundings of a system that is supposed to tend to those illnesses and injuries. There's this whole layer in our current healthcare system for many or even most of us that to me is unnecessary suffering. Because, again... To be inside an experience of illness, there's just a lot of that experience that is going to be difficult in ways that no one can really take away, because this is at the heart of being human. It's at the heart of being mortal. And this idea that people would have to fight for life-saving care within sort of hyper-rational, abstract, bureaucratic systems at the same time that they are trying to navigate the inside of what it means to be in a human body that is failing or malfunctioning, perhaps being in extreme pain, perhaps terrified that they will die shortly, perhaps mourning all of the things they can tell they are losing forever and we put them on hold. We put them on hold. So insurance is sort of the most basic level of this. In 2009, when I first passed out in the parking lot, I was uninsured. And it was a very strange experience in the sense that I was a white, upper middle class, educated American. And so in many ways, I should be the one who can make it through this system. And also, in a pre-Affordable Care Act United States, to be uninsured and have just gone into cardiac arrest means you're never going to get coverage for a heart condition ever again in your life, because now you have a pre-existing condition. I shouldn't say ever again in your life. I should say now you can only access insurance through employer marketplaces and not through private marketplaces. Since the passage of the Affordable Care Act, that piece has changed, meaning there is a place that people who have quote unquote pre-existing conditions can go to purchase insurance And that system is still highly bureaucratic and technical and requires just an extraordinary amount of order of operations work, you know, to get into see a PCP, a primary care provider, as is required to access any specialist can be almost impossible because only some PCPs are accepting the insurances that are available on the healthcare marketplace. And the healthcare marketplace in some areas might have only one insurer or no insurers and therefore greatly restricts where patients can go for care. And because that system is set up to be quote unquote cost effective, uh, which just a side note, there's no way that American healthcare can be cost effective without better regulating pharmaceutical industries, um, medical device industries. Like there are reasons that we are in a very expensive healthcare system and the types of fixes we try to put on that end up placing the burden back on the patient. So the patient ends up having to go through all of these layers of phone calls and wait lists and months and months of waiting. And, um, paperwork fighting in order to get what they need. And this form of bureaucratic wounding is a specific trauma that I'm hearing from a lot of readers about. It's it's not just me. And there certainly are versions of it that impact people within the private insurance marketplace as well, who have insurance through an employer. There still is all that experience of fighting with billing agencies and being on hold and trying to get prior authorization for certain procedures. But I think what's most important to me when we're thinking about American healthcare policy is that access to care is really only the first step. Um, being uninsured made it so that I had to really upend my life in order to get the care that I needed and also created an extra sense of urgency. Whereas I think consistent access to a system could have taken things down a notch and actually given me more time to make healthcare decisions that might have been more supportive to me in the long run, aka, perhaps not getting an ICD. But I truly thought I was going to die every minute of every day. And my sense of having access to the resources I needed to have in order to support myself was quite low. And I ended up being able to get my first ICD implanted because my younger sister's surgeon said he would donate his fee and help me navigate within his hospital. And I moved from Wyoming to Colorado, which had better social services in order to decrease the likelihood that I ended up with crippling medical debt. And my ability to do that really came from my background of privilege. You know, my father's a corporate attorney and he knew he couldn't just pay for my surgery out of pocket. And also he could support me in moving from Jackson to Boulder. And the fact that I was white and educated, and already had a sister who was known by these professionals. My sister was still on my dad's insurance at the time because she was a college student. That plays in in very complex, invisible ways. I don't know if people would have hustled to help me in the same way if I had been a Black woman. Mm. I doubt it. I doubt it, frankly. And I also know that the way I move within the system comes from the sort of confidence of being someone whose family members are educated and who have um, trained her to believe that she gets to speak back to professionals, you know, to like actually agitate within a system or believe that she deserves to get something. I didn't know anybody growing up who was uninsured and the only sick people I knew were old. And that I think really speaks to the economic and class privilege um, of my background So I'm very aware that even though my story is quite wild, I mean, what I went through to get care is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And the layers that I experienced later on when I did have healthcare through the Affordable Care Act were still also crazy. And yet um, there are so many um, layers of adversity and added weight that other folks in this country are experiencing. So, yeah, I don't know. There's no end to that question. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: that was wonderful. And actually you um, spoke so well to my next question, which was going to be about the kind of like maddening indifference of the insurance bureaucracy. And um, so, so I think I'll fold that into my final question for you, which is essentially what are you hoping that readers of Lightning Flowers will come away understanding better about not only the existing uh, state of healthcare in the United States, but also understanding better about what that system could be?
0: This question is really at the heart of things, Zoe. I think one idea that I really want to soak into readers is that we actually can design better systems. That our current systems center particular values and you can't fix the American healthcare system unless you start with a different value. I don't believe that profit is the appropriate value to center for something like healthcare. I can't speak to all of capitalism. I don't think I love capitalism, but I can tell that in certain realms of our, our society, profit cannot be at the center. And I don't believe that we will be able to adequately amend our system unless we start with the idea of what we want things to feel like. I think the other piece that really sits at the heart of what I've learned is that our cultural relationship to death is deeply unnatural and deeply harmful. And that there's a real bravery being asked of us around how we are able to hold space for the fact of being mortal and being woundable and what those experiences are, that especially in the COVID moment, there are a lot of people around us whose bodies have been changed forever by this virus, some of whom are quite young. And the sense of, um, oh, what is the word I want? The sense of being invincible is not it's just it's just not real <laughs> and i have again i have empathy for the fact that that's where a lot of us are starting and i understand that losing that sense is in some ways a function of age but i see a lot of adults and i see our systems organized around this idea that we shouldn't be getting sick that it's an aberration if we're sick that um you know we like to place all of our emphasis on the beginnings of things, the shiny things, the new things, and we don't tend to the endings. We don't tend to um, end of life. We don't tend to the way someone's experience really is changing in their body in the midst of illness or injury, and we don't tend to the end of life of products. I mean, that is just um, true across the board. Well. This has been just wonderful, Catherine. Thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thank you for these thoughtful answers to difficult questions. Um, And thank
0: you for writing such a wonderful book. Thank you. It means the world to hear.
1: My name is Zoe Bossier, and you've been listening to an interview with Catherine E. Standifer about her new book, Lightning Flowers, on New Books in Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for listening.